If you'll take out your Bibles, we're gonna be in Luke chapter 11 today. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse one. If you don't have a Bible, they are Bibles that you can borrow or even take with you if you don't own a Bible in the, underneath the seats in front of you. We value the scripture. We value the way uh, the scripture is the word of God. And we value every week coming together to look at it, to reflect on it, and to learn more about who Jesus is who he says that we are and the implications for our lives. And we're gonna be in Luke chapter 11 today. Before we go there, uh, I just wanna start out by saying thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, If you were here last week, unknowns to me and my family, some people in our church uh, raised money to help us get a car that works. Our car is on hospice care, my car is on hospice care. And uh, just so absolutely flabbergasted, blown away, Uh, undone by your generosity and love. And I just, all week long, like when I wake up in the morning and I remember, I'm like, oh my goodness, wow. Wow. Such a big moment for myself, such a big moment for our family. It was so cool to me that our kids got to be a part of that and that one of their formational memories of the church, you hear all these kind of horror stories about pastor's kids coming out of the church with a lot of baggage. And I'm like, I just love that we're a part of a community, that what my kids are gonna remember is when my parents were in need, people rallied around them and gave generously. That's just, man, so, so valuable. I wanna thank you so much. I know that the the giving, at least my understanding was that it was intended to be anonymous. So I don't really know how to properly thank people in that case. So just know, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Unbelievable. Um, Yeah, I could just... Go on and on about that. Uh, Second thing that I want to remind you is that this weekend, uh, our kids, our elementary school children, the the vast, uh, a lot of them, maybe the vast majority of them, are at Antioch Kids Camp along with a large number of volunteers. They went down on Friday. I was there for the registration and check-in. I've seen some uh, videos being sent back and forth of different activities. Kids are having loads of fun. Counselors, adults are having fun and probably worn out by this point as well. And they're learning about Jesus and growing in their faith. And so just really excited and honored that we get to do that. If you're a parent whose child uh, didn't get to participate this year, uh, we try and do this every year. And so there'll be one coming at the beginning of next summer. Uh, If you wanted to be a counselor, man, you can jump in and it will be a lot of fun. It will uh, restore your youth as you uh, jump in with the kids. And then tomorrow morning, bright and early, uh, we have our church-wide mission trip launching out to Tijuana, Mexico. Uh, We've got 30 individuals going to serve a sister church there. Part of our mission and our vision, right, is that we wanna build God's kingdom here in our city, in our nation, in the nations of the earth. And so in this opportunity, we're getting to go to a new city and a new nation to partner with a sister church there and building God's kingdom. And so we're launching out tomorrow morning. I'd love for you to be praying for us this week. Uh, the trip lasts all week and, uh, and then we'll be back and I will be excited to share testimonies on that. Okay, Luke chapter 11. We've been going through the gospel of Luke for a long time now. And what we've learned in Luke chapters one through four was we got introduced to who Jesus is. We got introduced to Jesus. We got introduced to his mission, his vision for the world, his vision for humanity. In chapters five through nine, we saw his mighty power 
on display. We saw his miraculous deeds on display. He was healing the sick, performing miracles, driving out demons, raising the dead, making disciples, transforming lives. We saw his power on display. From, ver- from chapter 10 to chapter 14, we're in chapter 11 today, but from 10 to 14, the focus is not so much on his mighty deeds as it is on his mighty words. It's not so much on his power, but his wisdom, right? And his wisdom is powerful just in a different way. And the way that we see this, the way that we're looking at this, the way that we're studying this is we're looking at some of his famous teachings, his famous parables that are marked throughout these four chapters to help us see that Jesus, who he is, is God himself has stepped into an upside down world and he's turning the world right side up again. And so in each of these parables, he's taking something that has gotten turned upside down in our world and he's turning it right side up again. He's setting the world in order. He's setting it right side up again and this crescendos to the cross and the resurrection. That the cross and the resurrection is, is the, we're turning an upside down world right side up again. It's the great reversal. And so the, Luke is putting these stories here, recording these stories, has them gathered here to build our anticipation and to build our understanding of who Jesus is and what the cross and the resurrection means and its implications for our lives. I hope today, and I hope as we go through this series, that you are encouraged that you are inspired and that you are equipped for the week that you have in front of you, that these will be things that you could carry into your week and could shape the way that you and I live. So Luke chapter 11, uh, we are reading starting in verse one and we're going to read through verse 13. Starting in verse one, one day when Jesus was praying in a certain place, Uh, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Jesus said to them, when you pray, say this, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and you say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I don't have any food to offer him. Verse seven, suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't give up, get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though the friend will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Verse 11, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, Will you give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So here in this teaching, Jesus turns our world uh, right side up again by working on our image and our understanding of who God is. 
He started that last week when he looked at the, the Good Samaritan. He's rearranging our image and our understanding of God and what's really important in life. And he's continuing that theme right here. He's giving us three different images that I want to make sure that you see. He's giving us the image of a king, of a friend, and a father. Jesus speaking about God being a king, a friend, and a father. And you might be like, well, why is it so important if Jesus is turning the world right side up again, why is he spending all this time focusing in on people's understanding of who God is? Like, aren't there hungry people in Jesus' day that might like to eat? or political problems that need to be dealt with, or wars that need to be stopped, all these issues, right? And there are. And Jesus, he's so wise. Jesus is starting at the root issue in order to deal with the later issues. Let me explain a little bit. I've told you this a number of times as your pastor, but I want to remind you of it, that what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. What you believe about God is the most important thing about you. And to explain that, I want to use some dominoes. So if you think about this, what your understanding of who God is or who God is not, either way, what your understanding of who God is serves as a really important starting point in your life. Because from there, it's that we understand who we are. Our identity ultimately is shaped, what we think about ourselves is shaped by who we believe God to be and what we believe the meaning of life to be. If your vision of God is that he is asleep at the wheel or that there is no God, then you are your own God and you need to decide, you need to make your way in the world. If your vision of God is that he's a judgmental guy up in the sky ready to throw fire down on someone, then your vision of yourself is kind of like a little worm that you're afraid to stick your head out of the dirt because you might get blasted, right? If your vision of God is that he just kind of gives you whatever you want and he's like a heavenly slot machine, then that deeply shapes what you think about life and who you are. I hope you're getting the point. So what we believe about God shapes our belief about ourselves. It not only shapes our belief about ourselves, but it shapes our beliefs about how we are to relate to the world around us. It shapes our vision of our purpose or whether there's any purpose at all. It shapes our vision of relationships and how we are to think about the people in our lives. It shapes our vision of right and wrong, what's just and unjust, what's moral and immoral, or if there's any morality at all. And then beyond that, it shapes as a community, not just as an individual, but it begins to shape a community of people who believe certain things about who God is. And so what you see is that your image of God serves kind of like the first domino that based on who you believe God to be, all these other things, all these other implications play out in your life. And so Jesus is starting at this foundational domino. Because if he can adjust and he can clarify and he can deconstruct and reconstruct who you and I understand God to be, well, then it will begin to work on who we understand ourselves to be, what we understand the purpose of our life to be, what we understand relationships to be about, right and wrong to be about. And ultimately, the world will be transformed, be set right side up again as we are transformed from the inside out. So this is why it's so important to Jesus that he focuses in with his disciples and with you and me on a proper understanding of who God is. 
And when that becomes clear, it's not that every circumstance in your life works out with alignment. Please hear me. Your circumstances are going to be all sorts of things in your life. But what it does work out is it gives you a healthy understanding of who you are. It gives you a deeper sense of character and purpose and meaning than that of just what's going on around you. It shapes you in the deepest way possible. That's where it brings alignment. And that's where Jesus is leaning in in this teaching and is leaning in in these parables. So again, what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. It will shape the trajectory of your life and the trajectory of our lives and the trajectory of our world. And so here, Jesus, if you'll note, his disciples have seen something in the prayer life of Jesus, in the way that he prays. And Luke has been faithful to show us Jesus in prayer, chapter in and chapter out. And now here in chapter 11, his disciples have seen Jesus' prayer life. And there's something about his prayer life, the way that he prays, that would draw out the question, would you teach us how to pray? And it's very interesting where Jesus starts, and I don't have time to go into the entirety of this right now, but he doesn't say, hey, pray what's in your heart. He doesn't say, pray whatever comes to mind. He doesn't say, just kind of think of something you need and ask for it. No, no, no. He actually gives them a very fixed prayer, a prayer that would shape their approach to what to pray about. I experienced this as a parent. I was trying to teach my kids how to pray, particularly my older two, and the extent of our prayers at mealtime. We'd pray at dinner as a family. The extent of when it was their turn to pray, it would be like, God, thank you that we have tacos tonight. Amen. I mean, that was about all they knew. Thank you that I had a good grade on my science test. Amen. Like, that's all that they knew. And I was like, how do I teach them how to pray? I say, well, hey, guys, just, just pray whatever's in your heart. Pray whatever you want to tell God. And they're like, I don't, I don't know. I'm just happy about tacos. You know, it's just, right? And, but I knew as a dad, there's so much more depth here. There's so much more for them to experience. And I randomly uh, was looking at this passage in my time with the Lord, and I was like, oh my goodness, I've never thought about this. When Jesus' disciples came to him asking, well, how do we pray? He gave them a fixed prayer that they could enter into, and it could shape their understanding of how they were to approach prayer. So it gives them what we call the Lord's Prayer. And so last summer, I said to our, our family, I said, hey, let's, let's learn this and let's pray this every evening as a family. And it was so amazing because for the first time as a dad, what I saw my kids do is utter more than just one sentence in prayer. They began to pray and take ownership of it. And they'll still do it even now. When it comes their time to pray, they're going back to this. And I hope that after a while, they begin to embody the contours of this prayer, right? And let it build them into other things. But I'm so grateful for this fixed prayer. It's similar if you're wanting to think about doing a, a 5K run. You ask someone who's a runner, right? Well, how do you train? They're like, well, I just kind of do what I feel, kind of see how my body feels and just kind of go out and I kind of know the things to do, right? If you're a beginning runner, and you take that approach, you're going to run like 10 seconds, and then your body's going to be on fire, and you're going to be like, well, surely I need to quit now. So what do you do? You get a little plan like couch to 5K, and it gives you some structure. And eventually, you embody that structure so that you can do it intuitively. But at the beginning, the structure is so important. 
And so if you're wanting to learn how to pray or wanting to start in the place of prayer, and I could do a whole uh, message, a whole series on this, but I'll just stop here. If you're wanting to learn how to have a, a more robust prayer life, to go beyond God, thank you for my tacos and my knees and my shoes. Beyond that, take this prayer and start to pray it and let it impact you. It's impacted me when we were going through it last summer. It was so convicting how unforgiving I was. And now every night I was forced to face, I need to forgive people in my life. And it just worked on me and changed me. And I would encourage you with that. But what I want to point out for the sake of our our time today is that note who Jesus references God is. He says that God is a father and that God is a father with a kingdom. We're praying to our Father. When we come to God in the way of Jesus, you are praying not to some abstract entity in the sky, but you are praying to your heavenly Father, and your heavenly Father is a king. And Jesus gives us that revelation of the kingship of God. Now, the kingship of God is not necessarily good news, right? Someone having power is not necessarily good news. It's what they do with that power that then becomes good news, And so last spring, we studied in chapters five through nine, the good and beautiful kingdom of God. And if you're like, I'm I'm hazy on God being a king, I want to encourage you to go back on our podcast and listen through that series. Because we spent so much time on that last spring, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on that today, but I'm going to focus on friend and father. But it's so important that we see God as a great king of a good and beautiful kingdom. But let's turn to the latter two portions of this text, one speaking about the friend and one speaking about the father. I want to start with the father because the passage opens with the father and then closes with the father. And I want to point out to you that in Jesus's day, the people around them would have been a mixture of Jews and Romans, right? And Roman culture, you might remember uh, maybe a Greek mythology class that you took or a Roman mythology class, who they believed to be the God of all gods uh, in, in Greek terms was Zeus and Roman terms was Jupiter, right? I've got a little picture of old uh, Zeus up here that I'll show you. So he was a pretty jacked guy with a lightning bolt in his hand and he was kind of the king of all. Interesting story about him, the way that he became king of all was his father was God before him, and his father was very jealous uh, of Zeus, and so he tried to keep Zeus from the throne. Well, Zeus rallied against his dad, killed his dad, and took power. That's how he became God over all. And the Romans believed that in his hands, one, one bowl beside his throne was the throne of ill will, of curses, and one was a, 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 a bottle of blessings. And he would just indiscriminately give those things to whoever he wanted. And he was known as Father. He was known as God the Father, Zeus. Another interesting thing about him, if people crossed him, he ruthlessly tortured them to say, never cross me again. So he was ruthless and capricious. He was also known for his sexual appetites, He was very promiscuous and would spend much of his time trying to seduce other gods and mortals for sexual adventures. This was their vision of father. For the the Jews, they had a bit different understanding of God. They envisioned God not as capricious like Zeus, but holy. 
And he was so holy that he was set apart from all of life. He was the great king above the heavens. He was so holy that you could only go into his presence once a year and then only one person, kind of the leader of the community, could go into his presence. He was that holy and set apart. And the way you related to him was by offering sacrifices. So again, this is their understanding. So when Jesus says God is a father, they're needing a lot of clarity. Is he the angry, capricious, jealous, revengeful, lustful father like Zeus? Or is he the distant, absent, checked out, only cares about the rules father that their culture had begun to believe? The enemy had twisted their understanding of who God was. And so when Jesus is talking about prayer, it's important to talk about what to pray. But I want you to know that he's putting emphasis here on who we're praying to. And who our understanding of God is. And so he tells this story to clarify, this is what God the Father is really like. And he say he uses a, a way of teaching, a rhetorical device where you compare something lesser to make a statement about something greater. Well, if this went that way, then surely this will go like this. So he uses this. He says, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Now, there may be some fathers who would do that to play a practical joke on their kids, but as a general rule, fathers will not do that, right? As a general rule, if you're a dad and one of your kids comes to you and asks you for a fish to eat, you're not going to like stick a snake in there just to mess with them, just to be spiteful to them, just to, just to harm them. You're not going to do that. And then he says, if, if a son or daughter came and asked you for an egg, would you give them a scorpion? In its place, can you imagine my, my one-and-a-half-year-old coming to me and asking me for an egg and me giving him a scorpion in its place? You'd be like, no, no one would do that. And yet, if there were Romans sitting there, that's what they thought God was like. That's what they thought the Father was like. That's what they thought Zeus was like. You never quite knew what you were going to get. So yeah, if I crossed him, he might actually give me a scorpion instead of what I asked for, instead of the egg, right? That's their understanding. For the Jews, they're like, well, I don't really know. It just seems like a long distance between me and God. I'm not sure that he would give me anything at all. And so Jesus is bringing into clarity that you don't just have a heavenly father that you're coming to. You have a good father. He says, if you then look, if you're evil, right? If you're not, I mean, you, every one of us has problems. Every one of us has flaws. He said, if that's you, and this is the way that you'd care for your kids, how much more when we're talking about God the Father would he give good gifts to those that come to him? So he shows us that we don't just have a father, but we have a good father who gives good gifts to his children. So that when we come in prayer, we're coming, and that should form and inform our understanding of who God is. You have a heavenly father that sees your needs, that cares about your needs, that desires to give you good gifts. That's so significant. If we'll latch hold of that, the implications for your life and mine are staggering. Then the second analogy that he makes, the second parable is that of a friend. And this is the second image that he gives to us of God. And again, think how this stood in stark contrast to the Romans' understanding of God or the Jews' understanding of God, that God could be viewed like a friend, 
like a king, like a father, and like a friend. And he speaks about this friendship that says, hey, if you need bread and you go to your friend's house, right, surely you think because he's your friend, he's going to help you. But even if he doesn't, because you knock enough, eventually he's going to help you. And again, Jesus is comparing a lesser to something greater. And he's saying, if this is how natural friendship works and you are evil, you have problems, you have flaws, just the same line of thinking as the father's story. If that's how this works, then how much more will your heavenly father hear you and respond? Because he is so much of a better friend than any you or I could ever be. So God is a king. He's a good father. And he's a good friend. And this is the image that Jesus is wanting to bring into clarity in the lives of his disciples and is wanting to bring into clarity into our lives as well. So that when we think about God, that we don't take, well, this is kind of my understanding of God, or this is your understanding of God. I'm not up here giving you Zach's understanding of God. These aren't ideas that I just came up with because somehow I'm that guy. No, this is Jesus, God himself, coming to reveal who the Father is is. These aren't the words of man. These are the words and revelation of God. And God is inviting you and me into the type of relationship that we would come before him as our king, that we would come before him as our good friend, and that we would come before him as a good father. Now, I want to point out in verse 9 through 10, uh, where it says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, the door will be opened. What we think of, well, is it, does it really work like that? Because you probably all have prayed for things that you did not get. And so you read this and there's a little bit of doubt that's like, that's nice. I don't know. And I want to challenge your perspective on this. If, if me as a dad, if my son or my daughter came to me and they said, hey, we would like to eat ice cream three meals a day, every day for the rest of the summer, what would I say? I'd say no. They'd come back to me tomorrow, they ask the same thing. I'd say no. They'd come back to me the third day, they ask the same thing. I'd say no. Even though they would keep coming and coming and coming. Maybe eventually they would wear me down, but my wife would then step in and say, no, we are not doing that. They will not have ice cream, right? That's just me. But you get the idea, as a good father, there are going to be things that I need to say no to that they may think are in their best interest, but I can see are clearly not in their best interest. And so I would encourage you to reconsider your understanding of verse 9 and 10, not so much as a promise to be like, oh, Now I have the heavenly slot machine that if I just pull the lever enough, I'll get what I want. But to understand it as a principle, a general principle about the way life works is if you keep knocking at something, eventually the door will be opened. If you keep seeking after something, eventually you'll receive. And in the case of prayer, if you will keep coming before the Lord, there are times and places where what we're asking for, God wants to give, but there's a delay for a number of reasons that we could go into, but delay does not mean denial. 
And yet, sometimes we have to realize that because we have a good heavenly father, we are going to come before him in prayer, and there are going to be things that we pray for that we're like, man, I'm going to be that widow, or I'm be that friend knocking on the door. And the Lord's like, I love your shameless audacity. Keep it up. But I'm not giving you ice cream three times a day, every day, for the summer. I hope this helps you see, oh, I see how this could come into focus in my life, that we are called to persevere in prayer. And there are things in prayer that take time to come about. A story that really marked me, I went to a conference in Dubai, an Antioch Leadership Conference in November, and one of the speakers there was talking about prayer. And he shared this image that he had heard from a, from a woman who was a, a, just a prayer warrior. And if we can put that image up, uh, she had been praying and seeking the Lord. And she uh, just had this picture come to mind of a half-built highway. A half-built highway. And she sensed the Lord speaking to her through this image that there were so many people who had been pursuing things in prayer and that it was going to be, but they had given up, got distracted, got discouraged, checked out, left the highway half built, when if they just stuck with it, there was breakthrough that was coming. It's powerful to think about. When they shared that image, it's just stuck with me for months. And so I've been meditating here on this Luke chapter 11 passage. I've been having my journal, Halfway Highways. And I'm like, man, what are the things that the Lord has put on my heart to pray for that I've gotten distracted, I've gotten discouraged, that delay has been longer than I would have hoped for? And I want to pursue those things, but I want to pursue those things with the humility to know that I have a good heavenly father, right, who has the, the right to tell me no. And that that allows me and has motivated me to persevere in prayer and to pursue him even for bigger things than I ever have before. It's so cool. I love the image of the half-built highway and thinking of this as a principle, not necessarily a promise. Last thing that I want to share with you is a question that you might have, have wondered. Well, is there an example of someone who really like lived this out? And I want to share with you the story of a man named George Mueller as we close. I share this story probably once a year because I think he's so inspirational. Uh, George Mueller, beyond just having a great beard, which is also a comment I make every time I tell a story, um, he was a gentleman that lived in the 1800s. Uh, he was German, but he spent most of his life in Bristol, England. And there he pastored the same church for 66 years. Can you imagine that? The same church, 66 years. And he was known for having just this desire to dream God's dreams, that there were things that the Lord had on his heart. Mueller was like, I want you to speak them to me, and I want to believe them, and I want to pursue them. And one of the things that God put on his heart, one of the things that God gave him a burden for was to demonstrate the faithfulness of God in answering prayer, that we really do have a good father, and we really do have a good friend who responds to the prayers of his people. So as Mueller was thinking about, well, how could I do that? How could I show the world the faithfulness of God? An idea came to him that there were many, many, many orphans in his nation. And so he got the idea to start homes for orphans 
But his approach, and this is what he felt led by the Lord to do because his burden was to show off the faithfulness of God in prayer, that he decided not to take normal fundraising measures, but he decided to go to the Lord in prayer and prayer alone and not to make any of those needs known. Now, when we look through scripture, we see God provides in a number of ways, many times through the practical work of our hands. Sometimes you see the apostle Paul raising money, right? But in this case, and in this case in particular, in Mueller's case, what he felt led by the Lord to do was to take the issue to prayer because his belief was, if I could care for orphans, and people could see that the money was supplied and the means were supplied by a poor, simple man such as myself going to the Lord in prayer, then this would be a testimony to our nation and to other believers like you and me of God's faithfulness and goodness to answer prayer. And so that's what he pursued. That's what he went about doing. And so this is just amazing. In his life, he built five orphan houses that cared for 10,000 orphans. And the funding for this all came through him praying and the Lord providing. And then people who were inspired by Mueller's work with orphans within 50 years of when Mueller began his work, there were 100,000 orphans in England alone that were cared for by people who saw what Mueller was doing and it inspired them to step out in the same way. That's unbelievable. That's amazing. And again, he said the reason why he wanted to do this was to provide a testimony of God's faithfulness as a friend and God's faithfulness as a father and God's faithfulness as a king to provide for the needs of his people. And so for hundreds of years, people like you and me have been encouraged and inspired by the fruit of his life. Now, why do I tell you that story? Well, you may not be called to start orphan houses, You may not be called just to kind of pursue uh, financial provision through prayer and prayer alone, but I bet that God is calling you to something in the area of prayer as he's turning the world right side up again. I bet he's calling you to some part that you have to play that you might be thinking of right now, a place where you're feeling like the Lord is wanting you to step out. It seems like, oh, I don't know. And, And Mueller wanted... And Jesus wants, and I want for you to be encouraged that you have a father in God who is a king and he's a good friend and he's a good father and he provides for the needs of his people. And so I want you to be encouraged today. I want you to be inspired today. I want you to be built up in your faith and how that might play out in your life. So I wanna invite you to stand with that. And we're going to close by taking communion, which we are doing each week to celebrate and remember God's faithfulness and his goodness to us, that Jesus has come for us and for our salvation, that when we take of the bread, we remember his body broken for us on the cross, our provision for our need. We remember his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins and new life in our lives, the new covenant. And so we want to celebrate that and let that fuel us as we go into our week to walk in this way, to walk and live as if we have a faithful father and a faithful friend in God, because that is who he is. And that is what you and I have. Uh, Before we do that, and if the officiants can come forward, I want to give an opportunity. If you're here today and you're like, okay, 
God's king, he's father, and he's friend. I want to follow Jesus. Like maybe you've been in church, but you've never made the commitment to say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to receive this fatherly love, this friendship, this kingship, and I want to follow you. Or maybe it's just been a long time, and maybe you grew up in church, but got detoured along the way somewhere, and it's just been a long time. You're trying to make your way back to God. I want you to know God does not wait for you just to get your act together to come to him. He's running down the road pursuing you. And as a church, we're so glad you're here. And the grace of God is available. The love of your father is available to you. We don't get clean and then come to God. We come to God and then he cleans us up with his love and his grace and he heals us and he makes us new. So if I get everyone just to bow your heads for a moment, I wanna give you an opportunity. If you're here today and you're like, man, I I need to follow Jesus, you feel the the Lord's tugging on your heart, or you're a prodigal and you're trying to make your way back, I wanna give you the opportunity to raise your hand for a moment. I wanna pray with you. And then we're gonna take communion together. And so if that's you, again, with every uh, head bowed, every eye closed, if you'll just stick your hand in the air, thank you. Just give you an opportunity to put your hands up. Okay, see hands going up. Uh, Lord, I just ask that the whole church, if you'd repeat after me in prayer, and if your hand was up, if you'd just join in with us. Jesus, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are king. And then in God, we have a father and a friend. And we receive your grace. We receive your life. And we commit to follow you today for all our days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, when you're ready, the worship team is going to lead us. You can come forward and receive communion and then return to your seats. Your presence 
Dios.